This is the RJ Metrics Buddy Time Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Moore. Every episode of this podcast features another RJ Metrics team member sharing things you might not find out about them hanging around the water cooler. I want to extend a big thanks to Alex Klieger. His Softball Diaries podcast is awesome and is the inspiration for this one. And with all that said, let's meet this episode's buddy. Okay, why don't you tell me who you are, what you do here at RJ Metrics, and how long you've been with the team. Okay, um, I am Johanna Richardson, and I'm a senior product manager here at RJ. So work with um, work with everyone on the product team, obviously, but also work pretty closely with the development team and, of course, our customers. And I've been here for um, just over two years now. Just over two years. Uh, and can you tell me a little bit about what your typical day here looks like? Yeah, it varies a lot. Um, I think the day, um, the day varies largely based on what projects it is I'm working on at the time and sort of what phase of development it's in. So if I'm working on a project that hasn't um, kicked off yet, I'm doing a lot of research, a lot of talking to customers on the phone um, with or without representatives from our account management team or from now our pipeline task force. and a lot of uh, working with Kevin, especially on wireframes and things like that. The projects I work on tend to be more of the front end things. Um, if I'm if a project has kicked off, then I'm spending a lot more time with our developers, going to stand ups, going to sprint planning meetings, and um, just being involved uh, in more of the minutiae of of a particular project. And um, yeah, and other than that, I mean, we, I think everyone on the product team spends a fair amount of time on the phone working with, working with our customers. So having just some open-ended conversations and figuring out what it is that they like or don't like about the product. Nice. Is there a right answer to the question, what does a product manager do? Because I feel like that's a question that starts to show up once product managers start to show up at at companies. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that, I don't think that there is. I think it varies so much on what the, what the company is looking for. I think the best description of a product manager is they're sort of like the glue. You don't necessarily know exactly what they're doing at all times, but if they're not there, you you should notice if they're doing their job properly. Um, and yeah, so I think that I think that the role de- just depends so much on the company's needs. I think there are going to be um, there are some companies where they're going to be looking for someone who's much more of a scrum master and is working, you know, in the strictly agile environment, and their entire job is. Uh, falls into more project management e territory where they're keeping everything on track. Um, and then there are other there are other companies where it swings completely the other way and the role is almost completely customer focused and um, much more community outreach and things like that. So Would you say it's fair to classify your role as extremely horizontally uh, allocated? Like you're, you're pretty much suit to nuts covering all those bases. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think here um, for sure. I think we're doing we're we tend to not, especially now we're trying not to do as much of the project management y stuff. So we really rely on our tech leads to keep the what is the I'm very bad with idioms. Um, keep the ship on course, something like that, um, and make sure that a lot of the, you know, the day-to-day stuff is going smoothly. So hopefully we're not getting pulled into 
too many of the implementation details. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's a pretty it's a pretty healthy balance here. Gotcha. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the places that you've worked before and some of your experiences mm-hmm. in product organizations that are, are very different from RJ uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I'm kind of curious maybe to ask the reverse of that question, which mm-hmm. is what's, what's unique about RJ and the way that we structure product for good, bad, or ugly? Um, is there anything that stands out about our product organization that's noteworthy? Yeah, I think um, the pro- working in project cycles is pretty unique. Um, I've, it's certainly something that I haven't done before, and I think it's, uh, it's really interesting, and I think it has a lot of benefits to it. So a typical, I've worked, um, I think this is true, true of some of my colleagues as well, um, we come from a more strictly agile background or loose, loosely agile background where we look at you know, what's, what's on the docket across, across different pieces of the product and see what should get slated to be worked on that week. That's sort of agile in kind of a nutshell. Um, whereas here, we look, we break out our developers into project-oriented teams, and within those teams, we have sprints within that mm-hmm. and plan accordingly. Um, so it's it's a bit of a different approach, and it's pretty cool because it enables, I think, the, uh, a lot of people on the development side to get to get that sort of leadership experience of running running a team because we're obviously cycling through projects with some rapidity. And um, yeah, and it also allows us to have a really intense focus on that particular thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been really interesting for me to, to work this way. Cool. Uh, we'll spend a lot more time on product and on work, but I want to make sure that at the top here we cover a little bit of your life outside of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's your typical day look like before and after you're here at RJ? Yeah, um, it's funny. I think my answer today is very different than it was two years ago. Uh Um, It turns out that having a child removes a lot of the spontaneity from your life. So my my outside of work time is much more predictable. So, um, yeah, in the morning is really spent... uh, Getting getting my daughter Juniper out of out of bed and get, getting her fed and dressed and out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband tends to be the primary caregiver in the morning, which is nice. So it gives me a little bit of flexibility there. Are you uh, before Juniper came along? Were you a night person or a morning person? Oh, I've never been a morning person. Uh-huh. Um, so that's one thing that is that is definitely that is definitely shifted is yeah. uh, not being able to sleep in ever now, which is kind of a bummer. I'm definitely not a morning person. Like, do not talk to me before I've had coffee. I'm one of those. Um, Yeah, and then work, I'm I'm the primary caregiver in the evening, so I pick pick the baby up from her school and um, spend some time just hanging out with her before we have we have dinner and she goes down for bed. And yeah, in my evenings, I'm usually doing a little bit of work, watching a little bit of TV, hanging out with the husband. Um, on those rare occasions where we have a sitter, um, we can escape into the city for dinner or something like that. What, uh, so you are out in the suburbs. Uh, was that always the yeah. case? Were you in the city at some point? Never in Philly. Um, so when we moved, we moved here for my husband's job about five I think it's five years ago now. Um, and I was working from home at the time. And um, yeah, we, we've just moved, we had moved a lot. So in the previous, the previous five years, we had done two cross country moves. And 
So we were ready to just buy a place and settle in and not have to worry about moving. And we knew we wanted to have kids, and we knew that the Philly school system is really not very good, which is a complete bummer because I think we probably would have lived, bought a place in the city otherwise. Um, we had always lived in cities, so this is sort of our first, mm-hmm. our first time in the burbs. But we're not too far. We can take a taxi home. So you That's- know. Yeah, that's a fine a fine line. Uh, yeah, to kind of it's stay like within. a twenty dollar cab ride, so it's not it's not too far away. Not bad. Um, so a lot of cross country moves, uh, a very long story, I'm sure. Yep. Let's rewind the clock. Let's go all the way back to mm. like where you grew up and uh, you know what your family's like. Yeah, so I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is a town about twenty miles southeast of Boston. So it's a pretty big big, small city. Um, there are about a hundred, probably like a hundred thousand residents, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, has, I went to the largest, I think the claim to fame is it's like the largest high school east of the Mississippi River <laughs> or something like that. Like how big was your graduating my class? My graduating class was actually on the small side. There was some, a dip in population then, but there were, I think 700 kids in my class. Holy crap. Yeah. yeah. That is bigger than my entire high school. Yeah. My sister is five years younger than me and her graduating class had more like a thousand mm-hmm. students. Wow, it, the population swings that drastically. Yes. Wow. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, so a big high school complex. Um, you know, there's a separate building for science. There were, you know, different academic buildings. Um, and it was really interesting experience. I think um, the, so the town that I grew up in is very diverse economically. Um, so I have very solidly middle-class upbringing. But there was also like a a huge, um, you know, a huge underprivileged population as well. So you throw all of those people into one setting and you just learn a lot about the world, I think, that way. Um, So I I feel very fortunate um, to to have seen that. And it's funny, my husband went to a prep school in L.A. and had like a completely different experience. Like... My there was a riot in my freshman year, you know. Yeah. So he definitely did not experience a riot, um, but the school had all of these great, great programs um, to keep kids in school that may otherwise have dropped out. So there was actually a daycare at my high school for for teen moms. Um, so you know, made sure that these girls did not have to drop out of school to take That's care right. of a child. Benefits of a really large uh, population. Yes. There. Um, and then, you know, as far as extracurriculars, because there's such diversity of students, there was such a diversity of things to do with your free time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The So I went to high school in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey comes under fire sometimes because it has so many school districts. Like mm-hmm. It is just uh, really there's even in the county where I grew up, I think we were one of 10 or 12 different schools every 20,000 person town has their own superintendent and their own administrator, all the right. like fixed costs associated with having a school district. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's often talk about consolidating and, and going big. Is there anything that you think you missed out on because it was such an enormous environment? Uh, or are you pretty, uh, you pretty much think that should be the, the way the world is? Yeah, no, I mean, there are def- there are definite drawbacks. I mean, I think, um, you know, Growing up there, there were things that I definitely missed out on um, because of the diversity and lack of focus on particular areas. So 
um, you know, there weren't AP classes for everything that I wanted to take, you know, but they're all sort of, uh, yeah, I don't know, like, they're, they're not, I did, I did very well, so I'm hesitant to complain about anything, but I, I definitely think that there are benefits in having a smaller class as well. I don't know most of the people that I graduated from high school with, which mm-hmm. is definitely rare. What uh, what did your parents do? Um, my mom is she was a teacher at the time. My mom is now a school administrator. Oh, cool. Um, she is about to retire. Like was she in the today. same district that you were? Yes, in? but never the same school. Never the same school. Never the same school. Um, and she um, she's like retiring right now. Um, she had been running after school programs for okay. the entire school district. And my dad um, my dad was a house painter. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what if you you said Boston southeast of Boston? Mm-hmm. Were you close enough to the shore that it was kind of a uh, beach population? Yeah, it wasn't exactly beach population. Um, we're not that close to the water, but it's a, a short drive to to water. So we were never far from. Um, you know, we'd go to the Cape for the summer and mm-hmm. yeah, hang out on the beach a lot. That was definitely a big part of of growing up around there. Gotcha. Uh, so it says here uh, you went to this school. I haven't heard of it before. Harvard. Oh yeah. That, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Actually, the R's are silent. Oh okay, gotcha. Harvard. <laughs> uh, tell me about the day you found out that you got into Harvard. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I was. I mean, I was ecstatic. I don't remember it that clearly, actually, but uh. I'm sure that there was just enormous relief. Um, I just I remember all of the anxiety leading up to getting, you know, waiting for those yeah. school acceptance letters in the mail and like, is the envelope going to be thin or thick? And, you know, knowing that the, I mean, it's even more so now, but the competition was obviously brutal. Yeah. Um, Did you know was uh, it kind of a, if if Harvard comes in as a yes, it's definitely going to be that, or did you kind of have some decisions to make? No, it was definitely going to be, I guess, as yeah. long as all of the, the money stuff worked out, mm-hmm. um, which it, it did. I think it was actually the cheapest school for me to go to, which wow. is pretty funny. Um, yeah, I was I was thrilled. I mean, I was a super nerd in high school, mm-hmm. so um, it was definitely something that, that I was working for and really, really wanted, I really wanted to go there, and... I'm I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, given how you described your high school, um, were there a lot of folks that were getting into Ivy League schools? Was there a couple of people every year that, that would head to Harvard, or was it kind of an exceptional thing? Yeah, there were three. Um, so there were three people from my class that went to Harvard. Oh, cool. um, one of which is my best friend. So that was that works out. That great. was really fun. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to think like. You know, it's funny, again, to contrast it with my my husband's experience. I think, you know, there were probably, like, 15 kids from his class that went to Harvard or something like that. It was a much smaller class. Um, But, yeah, there was, I think, uh, there was representation at all of the the Ivy League schools from from people, you know, people that I graduated with. What did you study? I studied art history, so clearly so relevant to every my single day here every as day. we sit in a yeah. studio with gray walls and gray ceiling <laughs> right. and gray carpet. No, I think, um, and I do, I do actually think it was quite relevant. I think um, with any any liberal arts education, you 
you learn how to think, and I think that's that's really important, and to question things and to not just take things at face value. So while, yes, I am not uh, lecturing about paintings or sculptures mm-hmm. day to day, I'm using all of those skills to just ask the deeper question, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is critical for product managers. You should be questioning everything. Yeah, uh, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like Liberal don't, arts don't education. Fantastic. Uh, did you, when you graduated, did you think that you were going to continue in the art history realm, go into an academic career? What What did you think? Uh, yeah, next? I did. I thought that I was probably going to take a couple of years off and then go to grad school, get mm-hmm. a PhD. That clearly did not happen. What did um, happen? What did happen? Um, so I spent... Um, did you, by the way, you met your husband during undergrad at Harvard or no? No, um, we met We met later. He went, he, went to, he went to Yale, so, you know. One of those. One of those. Um, uh, awesome. All right. I will, I'll put a pin in that. I'll come back in when, when the time comes. Um, uh, yeah, so I graduated, moved to New York. I worked for the New York Public Library. Oh, wow. Um, I was essentially, I was in the development department, so Mm -hmm. fundraising, but I was essentially a grants writer, and it was such a fun experience in many, many ways. Um, I got to just, after a certain point, I was able to just write grant proposals for whatever I thought was interesting, Uh Um, you know, with, obviously, with with some approval, but so I got to work on cookbook collection and help to organize a big fundraiser for that, and um, when the library purchased a significant portion of Jack Kerouac's archives, I got to go in and play around with things myself and write about it, and I mean, what fun experience for a kind of nerdy 21 year old yeah, yeah. Uh, that is uh, it's pretty amazing how, how big of a organization is the New York Public Library it's massive it's massive so um, and it's divided between the research libraries and the circulating libraries and um, uh, yeah I don't even know how many I should this is one of those things I should be able to say off the top of my head how many branch libraries are there are hundreds and um, yeah, and then there are four four research collections, gotcha. and millions and millions of volumes of books. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you were living were you living in Manhattan at that time? In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, was that before Brooklyn was super cool, or do you feel like you got in right at the right time? Yeah, I think. Brooklyn, or has Brooklyn always been super cool in my lens on the world? It's just, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Brooklyn's always been pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what neighborhood did you live in? Um, I first was in Park Slope, and then I was in Fort Greene. Cool. Uh, would you go back? What's uh, What's your recommendation for people who are at that stage of their life right now? Oh, definitely. I mean, I th- I feel pretty strongly that everyone should live in New York at least for a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. Uh, cool. So you've got the New York Public Library thing going on. It mm-hmm. sounds like it is a lot of fun and engaging yeah. and kind of fulfilling. What What uh, causes you to choose to go do something else yeah then I met someone who was running this new team at Google mm-hmm. um, that 
and I did not, and I could not comprehend why Google was hiring a bunch of uh, liberal arts majors, but they did. Um, so I I wound up joining. This is Google in New York, right? In New York, yeah. So I wound up working on a team at Google called the Creative Maximizers. Hmm. Um, and we were all, yeah, a bunch of smart, liberal arts educated, I mean, basically kids. Uh-huh. Um, and we, we, our job was to make people's advertising better. Make it, we oh, needed to make wow. it more okay. clickable. Yeah. Um, so we worked at the time it was, um, we were, we were assigned to different regional teams, so we worked with account managers and, sale, and a, a dedicated account management and sales teams, and we worked with, at that time, just clients who were spending the most money, yeah. and we worked with them to make their ads more relevant. And uh, How data-driven was that process? It was very data-driven. Um, so when I started, the primary, the primary advertising unit on Google was actually a CPM product, Oh really? Yeah, it was wow. not. It was not AdWords. Yeah, yeah. Well, AdWords. Um, so they were more like Twitter, Twitter length ads. Uh-huh. Um, they were just banners at the top, and um, because of the CPM nature, people thought that a good strategy was would just be to buy any word that was particularly popular. Uh-huh. So like you would have. Uh, I don't know, like health insurance companies think that it was a good idea to buy like Britney Spears as a keyword. Gotcha. And we had to teach them that that wasn't good. And so that was using data. Um, we, you know, we were able to see the performance of all of their advertising and help them figure out how to best allocate their budget and to drive up click-through rates. Was this before the double-click acquisition? Uh, yeah. And uh, before the Urchin acquisition? Before Google Analytics existed? Or Yes. Wow. Uh, this was, so this, uh, how big was Google at that point in time? Um, I was the 60th person in the New York office. office. Which is now thousands, Thousands, right? yeah. Huh. Um, by the time I left for, I moved to Google in Santa Monica. Um, but yeah, over the course of three years, I, when I left Google New York, it was over a thousand people. Wow. So... I saw explosive growth, which was uh-huh. crazy. That, uh, I saw, like, does anything stick out in your head? When you think about that time and the explosiveness of the growth, anything that just really has stuck with you? Yeah. Oh, God, there's so much. Um, well, it was fascinating. Uh, I mentioned the CPM product, so advertisers loved that. Mm-hmm. And we got rid of it, and people were so scared that it was going to be a complete disaster. Yeah. And it wasn't, because, I mean, look at AdWords. Mm-hmm. It's it's massive. It's huge. Um, we also shut off advertising to to certain industries, like porn, which uh-huh. was a massive, massive advertiser on Google. Oh wow! I did time. not realize that. So, yep, I had to, I got to write porn ads. Uh. They were terrible. <laughs> I was very bad at it. Um, not something I put on my resume. Um, but they. Well, I'm glad that we've now uh, <laughs> we've now put it out into the cloud for all time. For all time. Um, but they. But I mean, like Google is just willing to walk away from millions and millions and millions of dollars of revenue because wow. this was this was the right thing to do. Huh. Um, yeah, so I saw you know I saw a lot of um, just being conf- you know being confident in the decisions that that you're making, and yeah. it all sort of shakes out. I mean, obviously, 
they're the massive massive volumes of data on which they can make decisions so it wasn't like someone just decided at a meeting one day yeah. hey we're going to shut off these industries yeah I would I would think though if you're just looking at the data it would suggest pretty resoundingly that you should double down on porn and not yeah. be getting rid of it <laughs> exactly. so like there is some vision based decision making yeah there's definitely there's definitely the vision but they could also see that the advertising revenue from other industries was uh, growing yeah. tremendously higher, higher ceiling yeah um yeah, and I moved over into, from creative maximizing, I moved into a new role where I was a specialist, um, sort of sitting in between the product and account management teams mm-hmm. um, for the consumer packaged goods industry. Really? For is, advertisers in the CPG? For advertisers, yeah. Um, this is also the longest job title I've ever had. It was Vertical Operations Senior Specialist colon Consumer Package Goods. <laughs> so it really rolls, wow. rolled off the tongue. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful and exciting challenge. I mean, I, when I started working on, C, on CPG, I retained Coke as a client, and they were spending wow. something like hilarious, like a hundred dollars a day on advertising. That's like, incredible. Yeah. Was this? Uh, <clears throat> is this before or after the move to California? Uh, this is before. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and did the uh, the creative team? Um, what was the phrase again? Creative maximizer. Creative maximizers. Is that team? Still in existence, do you think? Yeah, um, under a different name. They're uh-huh. now more more boringly called account strategists. Account strategists. Yeah, and there are a lot more of them. Yeah, when we started, we had global team meetings, so uh-huh. there were like 15 of us around the world and wow. had a conference call every week, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so how did the... Uh, oh, I guess I'll ask about the move to California mm-hmm. uh, and it, did that correspond with yet another change in role or was that something where it was uh, an extension of what you were doing it did correspond with change in role so um, my my now husband then boyfriend um, he was finishing his PhD oh man we skipped we skipped a, we skipped the chapter there we so we you're in also. you're in New York City and uh what happens to, for you to meet this uh, oh, this man of your dreams um, we it's funny we met through mutual a mutual friend, my friend Raku, who also, who is, it's very funny, she's my freshman college roommate's best friend, and then she wound up working on my team at Google. Oh, crazy. So, yeah, small world. And she's now married to another person on our team, and they have, they just had a beautiful baby boy, so oh, Google gorgeous. love. Thanks, Google. Thanks, Google. Um, yeah, and so we met through her. My husband actually messaged me on Friendster. Whoa! Kicking it back. This is really showing my age. Um, I have. I now have a whole other line of questioning, but mm-hmm. I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick with the yeah. relationship. Um. Yeah. And then he. Anyway. So he was finishing his PhD when we met. So he was living in New York and just commuting to Yale a couple of times a week to teach. And we. Yeah. And then we were probably going to move in together at Brooklyn and then he got a job teaching at Pomona while he was still finishing his PhD uh-huh. and yep we moved in and moved cross country at the same time wow bold bold move bold move so getting married seemed like meh, yeah yeah no big what, uh, what was his PhD in English um, so he teaches literature yep okay. uh, where is Pomona relative to uh, it's in the LA area yeah right? it's um, just further inland 
okay. So about 45 minutes east of L.A., which doesn't really necessarily mean that much because if you're in certain parts of L.A., it could be two hours away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So we, we were talking about L.A. the other day. Talk to me about the L.A. experience and, and how you felt about it. I hated it at first, mm-hmm. like completely hated it. I don't think I was ready to leave New York, and, of course, I was just comparing everything to New York, and um, I hated driving, and then I found myself with a miserable commute where it could sometimes take me two hours to get home from work, mm-hmm. which was... No bueno. Um, but then I grew to love it. I, I, yeah, I'm definitely, I definitely miss it. Yeah. Miss certain things about it. The weather, of course. What do you um, think changed that allowed you to grow to love it? Um, just, I think I started to, I mean, it's such a cliche, but like I started to make more friends mm-hmm. and I got used to driving. Um, and yeah, I just started to have like my own, my own thing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of found found my place, yeah. Uh, so, uh, what was the uh, the new role that you were able to? So it sounds like you were you were able to kind of pull some strings at Google and remain uh, part of the Google team. Yeah, um, I was actually brought over to Helm, or not Helm exactly, but um, to help to smooth an acquisition. So Google had brought bought a product that. Um, facilitated self-serve radio ads. And oh, yeah. I used this at some point in time. Uh, what was that company called? DMARC. DMARC, that's right. Yep. I had a startup called SmartRays. Uh, that was an affiliate marketing uh, thing for nonprofits. Uh, this is like 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, I remember exactly recorded, I uh, recorded uh, a really like cheesy, uh, you know, jingle song, and had it running uh, like in the Midwest on random radio mm-hmm. stations through DMARC. Yeah, uh, wasn't the most effective, but that business also wasn't uh, wasn't the best uh, at the um, whole product market fit thing. Yeah, it was. Um, it didn't work out, but it was very interesting, and I know weirdly a lot about radio advertising. Yeah, I, I found it to be. I think the the reason that I latched onto it so much was that I found it to be such an interesting intersection of. Uh, a digital platform like Google that is the self-service nature of it combined with this legacy industry that feels so much like you got to know a guy who knows a guy. Mm-hmm. Like when we ran ads on the, the SEPTA uh, regional rail, yeah. um, it's like, if you didn't know to call this guy at this time and tell him that this guy told you about that rate, you're going to end up paying 10 times as much for it. Yep. Um, the fact that that could be so democratized was really exciting. Yeah, and there was a lot of friction there for sure uh-huh. um, because have this new media darling entering the space and trying to disrupt this market that has its own codes its own ways of doing things so it was yeah it was really it was really interesting to see some of those dynamics play out yeah um but yeah it was it was really fascinating uh project work work on. When you say uh, DMARC ended up not working out, did you get to see that whole life cycle during your time I there? Had, or did you, uh, I had left and then it, I mean, it's of course because I left that it, it folded. Clearly. Yeah, clearly. Direct, direct uh, correlation. <laughs> yeah. So I did not witness uh, the demise of, of that product, but um, I stayed in close contact with a lot of people. So 
sort of was able to follow along with what was happening. And Do you remember any big wins from that period or things that were, uh, you know, uh, the small victories along the way? Yeah, I think a lot of it was ju- what I was focused on was just making it a part of AdWords. Um, so bringing, so I was really focused on bringing it into the fold. And, um, and then I also wound up doing some product marketing for it. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was just exciting every time we had more ads bought on the platform. So seeing, you know, longtime AdWords users start using testing out oh, yeah. radio was pretty was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we didn't have big brands buying ads through us. Um, yeah. So it was a lot more of the, uh, you know, the companies that were small, small, medium sized businesses who are placing AdWords themselves and then getting to test out a new format. Gotcha. Was there an equivalent of the creative maximizers for the radio content? No, there there were not. So maybe maybe if there had been. I uh, I sure could have used some help. That's the, uh, that's the truth. Yeah. Although was, my $20 a day budget was really probably yeah, not well, quite I think, warranting it. I think that was uh, pretty typical of most of the advertisers that um, that I saw. Although, you know, of course, there were there were big, like, long-standing customers of DMARC that came along. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was really interesting to get to listen to the playback and, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Uh, in an industry that is so quantitative, I guess you kind of push these things out over the airwaves and you don't get much back. Was there anything in place to try and improve the tracking of the effectiveness or even, like, the, thing, the question that I always had is I... I believed that these things were being played on these radio stations in like the Midwest or wherever, but yeah. I I had zero way of actually validating other than taking the word of. Uh, yeah. Google. But I guess that's true for pretty much you know any online uh, advertising. Yeah. Um. So with with uh, the DMARC integration, we um, actually made it so you could hear the playback, so you could hear the little snippet of. Oh, the like what's program. on either side of it, and then. Yeah. Oh, I totally missed out. Which on that. was cool. Um. And then uh, the. The, I mean, the metrics, that's that's another thing that's interesting is because you're relying on third-party data. Like, obviously, Google has no native no native way to uh-huh. uh, capture anything about a particular radio station's audience. Um, so, yeah, so we worked with Arbitron Data to provide um, listenership metrics. Ah, good old Arbitron. Good old Arbitron. Uh, cool. So uh, that... I know at some point in time you ended up at Yale. Uh, is that the next thing? Yeah, that's the next thing. So I left Google. I took an educational leave from Google to um, complete an MBA and then wound up, uh, my husband wound up getting a position at Connecticut College. Oh, okay. I don't um, want to gloss over your MBA, though. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. uh, was that something that you were doing while you were at Google and then took time off to finish or you just knocked it out? And, I uh, just knocked it out. I went full time. So full-time. it took, yeah, so I took, a, ostensibly I was taking a break from Google, although mm-hmm. clearly I did not go back. Um, yeah, and so that was great, a great experience. I think I probably wouldn't have done it on the East Coast. I don't know, maybe that's not true, but I loved the diversity of backgrounds with people yeah. at UCLA. It wasn't, uh, I knew I was never going to be a banker or a consultant, so mm-hmm. it was sort of like my tribe. Like, here are a bunch of people who were doing all sorts of things, like working yeah. in tech, working in, obviously, entertainment, mm-hmm. um, nonprofit stuff. Um, yeah, and then we moved. So we were living in Connecticut, and 
I had this job offer at Yale and then one at a very traditional big company. And I went with the the weird thing at Yale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just seemed like I knew that we were going to be there for two years mm-hmm. and that was how long his appointment was. And yeah, so I knew that it just seemed like the right opportunity. Yale was looking for someone with precisely my background to work at a at a center that studied food policy and obesity issues. Wow. So I worked on uh, food marketing to children, and I was the specialist for digital media. Wow. Uh, what were some of your findings? Um, it's all very depressing. Yes. Lay it on me. Yeah. This is the, um, the Buddy Time podcast. It's all about sombering facts about childhood obesity. Uh, yeah. Um, so we had a massive, massive, massive budget. So we were grant funded. So we were able to, we were sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Sure, yeah. Um, so we had money to buy lots of data. So I worked in a team. We were led by... Uh, this wonderful woman, Jennifer Harris, who's still there and is um, she's a PhD in psychology. Mm-hmm. And there were um, a couple of research associates and research assistants. And we just bought lots of data and also pub- and also did our own surveying, nationwide huh. surveys. How big was the team you were on? Um, we had about, I think, eight people. Mm-hmm. People, there was two... Yeah, our principal scientist, two research associates, three assistants, or maybe only six, and a statistician. Gotcha. Were you you were a research associate? Yeah. Cool. Um, and so we bought Nielsen data. We bought. I also did radio. It's funny because of my radio. You were really background. just funneling dollars into Arbitron at every Arbitron, every stop of your, every uh, your journey line. here. Um, and yeah, so we bought bought lots of lots and lots of data. We were able to afford to buy data from supermarkets as well. Oh wow! Um, so what uh, what is the data that you're actually buying in those cases? So we were buying um, data about exposure and then data about a c- consumption. Okay. Um, and so we did a lot of slicing and dicing data to look at uh, how f- uh, first uh, cereal companies, then fast food companies, and then sugary drink companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so each was a year-long project. And how they target um, different socioeconomic groups and ethnic groups. Um, so we saw that Basically, if you are poor and a minority um, and a child, that's what we focus on, children, um, that these companies are going to target the worst of the worst foods at you. Wow. Yeah. So big offenders for cereal, like Reese's Puffs, mm-hmm. targets black children in, in you know, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. Wow. Uh, and, and is that... that is- I guess that's the availability side of the study, right? So yeah. you're going to uh, supermarkets and getting data around just like shelf space occupied by these things. Yeah. Of- so we did. Um, so we were able to purchase. By the way, love Reese's Puffs. <laughs> they're so. They're, <laughs> they they're are, quite delicious. They are incredible. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. So we purchased um, all of the exposure data. Then we were able to purchase consumption data from. Um, 
basically everywhere nationwide broke born out um, broken up by zip code so we could look at That's incredible. yeah so we could match actual exposure do supermarkets have that data at the ready or did you say hey we've got this money can you compile this for us uh third party oh, okay. yeah there's yeah there's of course there's of course a, a company that that does all of this and gotcha. yeah it's all scanner data oh, it wow. is incredibly expensive huh. as you can imagine when you say scanner data is that the UPC? Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then they are, are the the supermarkets are selling raw data to these aggregators and the yeah. I actually it up? Um, I don't remember exactly how the the money changes hands here, but essentially something like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's broken out by. You can have things broken up by a zip code and then by a type of store, whether it's like a big box store, like a Target or Walmart or a supermarket or a convenience store. Um, but yeah, you get down to the barcode level. <laughs> so we're talking massive sets yeah. of data we were working with. Um, yeah, and then we did our own things about um, preferences. Like one of the most astounding things we found that McDonald's, a company that claims not to mar- market to children but has websites directed at every not to uh, mention the grimace yes yes i mean clearly friend yes clearly markets children i mean they have a they have a website for toddlers Mm. yeah um like you do right they're like oh no it's for parents it is not um we found that uh and this is all of course with various controls on the data um we found that 20 percent of preschoolers were asking their their parents for mcdonald's every single day Oh my yeah. God. yeah. I'm like, I'm not surprised, but I'm surprised. That yeah. is, that is, that is a killer stat. Yeah. Did you get, uh, I hear that and I think, oh, wow, I know that if I wrote a blog post about that, it would end up, uh, you know, getting re- republished everywhere and everything. Did you uh, pick up recognition and, uh, yeah, we, was this, yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, our, particularly our fast food study got, pub, got picked up by mainstream media, mm-hmm. um, it's funny we had, and we did a lot of um, secret shopper stuff. So oh, yeah. we hired secret shoppers to go out and do things for us, as well as we did our own secret shopping, mm-hmm. which meant we ate a lot of French fries over the course of doing this work. Um, Take one for the team. Now. Yeah, um, but yeah. So one interesting statistic we found was that McDonald's, um, although they have different healthier healthier options for their their Happy Meals, mm-hmm. we found that they were. I forget exactly what it was like nine times out of ten or something we're saying we're just defaulting to giving french fries without asking if you wanted the apple slices and uh, I think it was Good Morning America or the Today Show actually one of their reporters went to go reproduce that and went into McDonald's and ordered a Happy Meal and were given the fries and we actually had McDonald's change their behavior so um, french fries are no longer the default that is great that is great. So, you know, it is a it is a small public health win, but it's an important one. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, the third category you mentioned was sugary drinks, which I uh, I am a big uh, opponent of the 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 grand uh, juice conspiracy. Mm, yes. uh, the juice industrial complex that is out there. Uh, I, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what you found there and uh, anything particularly bone-chilling? Yeah, um, so we looked at... We actually didn't focus specifically on ju- on, on 100% juice, although there was some yeah. controversy around that, about whether 
we should have or shouldn't have, but part of it was just the scoping. So, so it's certainly uh, even more of a culprit. Um, uh, so but. we focused um, on soda, energy drinks, sports drinks, and um, and then fruit drinks. So you're Johanna's making air quotes right yes, now. Yeah. Fruit drinks. So you're like fifty percent juices or fifteen uh-huh. percent juices. You're Capri Sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it was it's all it's all just appalling. Mm-hmm. Um Coke in particular does so much event marketing and so much um you know, sports sponsorships that it's just it's just everywhere. And it was it was interesting because how do you even quantify that? That's really difficult. Yeah. Um like I uh my team has a a a chapter in a textbook about about this and I wrote up about Coke and event marketing mm-hmm. and the challenges of how do you even quantify that, that level of exposure around the Olympics, right? Yeah. It's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, I think, I think one thing that we did learn over the course of that is that parents are becoming savvier. Um, but the advertisers are just becoming more and more insidious. Mm-hmm. There are lots of iPhone games and all sorts of stuff to make kids, you know, interested in these products. Wow. Yep. It's the uh, the candy cigarettes of uh, exactly of our era. Yeah. Um, so uh, well, I, and the this project was. Uh, did it have like a time bounds on it? Like did, you knew the entire time that there was going to be a date when this all. Yeah, up. yeah. So we um, we had a year for each category of food, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, we had um, a I don't even know how long her reports were like two hundred page report mm-hmm. on on the state of affairs right. and what, website. What uh, did you have a way of quantifying success in these? Um, so definitely defining success. I guess. Yeah, um, that's in, that's an interesting question. Um, so part of it, I mean, what the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is trying to do is they had forget exactly what their goal is, but say like a twenty-year goal to do something crazy like end childhood obesity. Uh-huh. Well, that's not going to happen. Um, so a lot of the the determinants of success were around um, publicity and um, around um, any sort of like measurable public health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So like the McDonald's, the McDonald's move was, was was the sort of thing that they were looking for Mm -hmm. and funding their research and funding our research. So yeah, there were obviously board meetings and things like that um, with the the leadership of our center. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but we didn't have things like this, you know, this needs to be downloaded X number of times or anything like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. It was more of the, like, meta mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So when uh, when this all tied up, um, were you married at this point yet, or? Um, got married during it. Got yes. married during it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, uh, so was uh, what was it that eventually brought you to Philly? Was Philly the next step, or are you? Yeah, I'm trying to count the number of cross country uh, moves that are going on. I think we're I think we're yeah. rounding home plate here. Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about kind of what the decision to to kind of pick the next. Yeah, step. so my husband is teaching at Villanova. Um, he's tenure track, so knock on wood. Um, if every 
if everything goes according to plan, we're here for the long haul. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and we were ecstatic to move here, I have to say. Um, we were... Did you have any connection to Philly before Nova? None at all. Like, I don't think we had spent more than a couple of days here combined. How, uh, why were you so ecstatic? Um, because we, when we um, actually visited the city, mm-hmm. we could tell that it was great. Um you know, there were all sorts of things to do. It was a, it was a real city. Um, the other thing is the academic job market is, as I'm sure you can imagine, absolutely atrocious. Mm-hmm. And so for my husband, there were literally three jobs in his field in the entire country. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And they were in, I hope none of our readers will be, our listeners will be offended by my saying this. Um, one was in Stillwater, Oklahoma which was not exactly some place where we were thrilled to go. And the other um, the other position he was actually a finalist for was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Wow. Um, which... Very different. Very different. And, you know, I think that those places may be absolutely wonderful, but to, for me to think about having a career in either of those places was difficult to imagine. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so... When you got here to Philly, um, I know RJ Metrics wasn't your your first uh, place that you worked. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your path to, to this role? Yeah, so I've you know it's taken me I think a little bit to find my way in Philly. Um, so I worked at Leadnomics first, where mm-hmm. um, some of our wonderful colleagues are from. Shout mm-hmm. out to Marissa and Brian. Um, so I worked closely with both of them there, and it's so great to see them here as well. Wow. Um, and after that, I worked at Curalate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about Curalate and your time there. Curalate has become a, one of the more visible success stories yeah. in town. Uh, uh, big fans of that company. Um, you were there at a, at a time when I believe it was still a pretty small mm-hmm. team. Yeah. Um, what were some of the big questions being answered? And, uh, you know, did you have a sense at that point in time that things were kind of starting to, to work and kick into gear? Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I think there there was no doubt in my mind that Curlate was was successful and would continue to be successful. Um, I had great experience working with some of the um, some of their clients. I had a pretty close relationship with Urban Outfitters for mm-hmm. one, and Lily Pulitzer. You know, they happen to be local, so it was great to actually be able to spend face to face time yeah. with some of those clients. Um, were you, what were you doing for them? You were in a product role. Yeah, I was. I was the product team, so I was doing. Uh, <laughs> that, that'll do it. Yeah, so I was doing uh, product management, product um, marketing stuff as well um yeah so worked on a, um, a couple of cool product launches like uh the fan rail product which is really exciting which allows um companies to actually put user generated content back on their website and tie it back to um different products so like if you see some instagram photo of someone wearing you know something they bought at urban outfitters Urban Outfitters can now monetize that gotcha. and click on that photo and um, go be directed right to the page where you can buy it. Oh, very cool. Um, so that that was really cool, and yeah, and worked on worked on some some fun case studies there as well. So worked with Rebecca Minkoff and Urban Outfitters on mm-hmm. case studies for them, and yeah, they have a they have a great team. So I'm I'm not surprised at how well they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Big, uh, big Philly wins. Yeah. Good all around. It's awesome to see. 
Um, cool. So uh, then you uh, uh, you ended up uh, here. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, can you do you remember your interview process? Do you remember who you talked to? Anything like stand out yeah. from those early days? I talked to Matt first. Matt Monahan. Yeah, Matt Monahan. Yes, he did my phone interview, uh-huh. and then he had me do a project, which was fun. It was the elevator. Design. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that project. Yeah, that was fun, and yeah, I remember. And then I came in for a quick succession of interviews. And I remember leaving thinking, if this doesn't work out, it's because they're looking for someone different. Like, I think I felt that I represented myself yeah. well in the interviews. That's and all you can I felt like, I, yeah, it was one of those, um, yeah, it was a day of interviews that I felt like very good about. So, yeah. And I think, it, I, if I remember correctly, I think your interviews, uh, in a very good and healthy way, like forced us to think about what we were looking for. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, I think, had drawn some uh, uh, some connections between product management and like UI and UX design, mm-hmm. uh, which was historically really Matt Monahan uh, was, was, and I, did we have Brian Sloan at the time? I think we yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, both of them were people that started out as engineers mm-hmm. at RJ and kind of transitioned into product roles. So we, I think we had this bias in the product folks that we were interviewing toward more of a engineering background type, which uh, I think has all kinds of biases associated with it. And a, a robust team should kind of be representative of mm-hmm. uh, both sides of that fence. And I think this was like, we decided to, uh, Definitely uh, expand our horizons uh, by bringing you on board, and I think that uh, you were actually a part of our process. Our, our extent to which we were impressed with you changed the way that we think about you know what the team ought to look like. So that was uh, cool. So good on you for that one. Uh, thanks for opening our yeah. eyes a bit. Um, I one thing that I uh, have been super excited to ask about, uh, but I've held out until minute fifty three here. Uh, Synesthesia. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know that I've ever actually talked to anybody with that. Can you actually explain for people that don't know what it is, what that actually yeah, is? Yeah, so synesthesia is when you have sort of overlapping senses. So some people, um, instead of just hearing sounds, will actually see them. Um, so listening to a symphony will be like this incredibly colorful experience. Um yeah, um, I think the most famous person to have had synesthesia was Vladimir Nabokov. Um, but I have, so I have um, very strong color associations with with words, um, not with not with sounds necessarily, but with common words and with letters and numbers. So every number has a very distinct color to me. So if I huh. see numbers that are written that are not in the right color, it totally freaks me out. Like two is yellow, seven is green, yeah, eight is blue. Right, twenty three is yellow. Um, is it? Do you find if you wrote out one to one hundred, will you like? Are all the Fibonacci numbers green or something like it's that? It's actually, or? I'm. Um, it's just like all the twenties are the same color. The thirties ah. are the same color. Yeah, gotcha. and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, and I didn't realize I that this was odd at all until until. I don't even remember, but I think I was probably in like junior high or something by the time I realized that not everyone had these strong, this like, to me, it is objectively like two is yellow. Uh-huh. Like there is, yeah. 
Awesome. I, so I don't understand how you thought. I ran a two on the whiteboard in blue marker. Yeah, let's go yeah. like, it's eh, wrong. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and the same thing goes for common for common words and people's names and things like that. Do you? I think of this as uh, somewhere between a superpower and like being on mushrooms all the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> have you found that you can use it to your advantage for memorization or for other kind of? Tricks? I think it probably, and I think I probably didn't realize it but I'm sure it helped me with like my multiplication tables sure, yeah. things like that um, it's very helpful with um, remembering what level I parked on in parking lot oh yeah yeah unless the the levels are also colored and then I need to do like a mental override yeah um, but yeah it definitely it definitely is helpful I'm very good at remembering have you met any other people that have it is there like a uh, secret coalition of the uh... I yeah I think I've Happen to have met a couple of people, but alas, I'm not a member of a formal society or something. I'm Although, sure there's some. I'm sure there is. That meets in be, the uh, Union League over there. Or something. Yeah, but they probably everyone probably just fights about yeah. what's correct. So <laughs> I did actually once. I saw I was at a gallery in Chelsea and saw an exhibit by a, a synesthetic artist and. I just completely disagreed with everything. Oh wow! And it was very yeah. jarring. That's <laughs> great. Uh, so. Um, I'm looking at my dossier here, uh, making sure that we cover. So it's pretty amazing. I mean, your your story of even just like your professional career is <laughs> so diverse and robust that it like consumes the entire hour. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I do want to ask about a couple more uh, maybe superficial things. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, talk to me a little bit maybe just about like parenthood uh, and the experience of you're a mother now and it's a thing that uh, how old is Juniper yeah, two? she'll be two in July two yeah. in July so um, it was yeah it was about six months pregnant when I started here I guess yeah, yeah which was crazy um, yeah it's it's challenging and it's also wonderful mm-hmm. um, which I think is what everyone says um, I think the th- one thing that I w- wasn't quite prepared for was how it really removes all spontaneity from your life, Mm -hmm. at least for a while. Uh Um, Yeah, so things like going out for, like, grabbing a drink after work, whereas, of course, like, that used to be something I could do regularly, and now it involves coordination. Um, So things like that are, um, I would say that's, like, the downside, if you can even call it a downside. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing just to see this little person pick up skills and just learn how to do things. I remember the first time she touched the toy herself. That was just mind-blowing to me. It was like, look, she she touched it. Like, she meant to touch it, and she touched it. It's incredible. Um, and yeah, now... Are there, what are the milestones? It sounds like there's deliberate actions, yeah. and then there is kind of... Uh, I would imagine that using something as a tool or, like, getting some kind of, like, leverage out of various yeah. things is a yeah. big moment. And being able to do things like like just with her her own self like being able to do things like I'm clapping or I'm jumping like all the physical milestones Um, but language I think is the most fascinating Um, it's just incredible to see her vocabulary expanding all of the time Mm -hmm. and now she's starting to pick up on ticks you know just verbal ticks that other people have Ah. my husband asked her a question the other day and she said um before she answered it (laughs) like where did she get this? That is, uh, I saw a study the other day uh, that uh, people who cannot hear or people who are deaf 
don't make the achu sound when they sneeze. Uh, like it's a completely oh, really? learned trick. I mean, you'll make some sound like yeah. the actual like noise that your body makes, but a lot of the noise that people make when sneezing is just picked up. It's like a tick picked up from hearing. Other oh, that's so funny. It. She uh, does love to fake sneeze. So it's yeah, a lot of fun. I yeah. Love to fake sneeze. It's, uh, <laughs> Who doesn't? Very refreshing. Yeah. All right. Uh, what? Uh, when do things like uh, preschool start and all that stuff? I imagine it's years down the road, but uh, you and your husband both work. How, how do you work out the... Uh, yeah, so she goes to um, a daycare that is run like a school. So mm-hmm. they um, even she started, we had a nanny until she was about a year old. And when she transitioned to school, you know, part of the thing that it was like, show us, here's mm-hmm. the weekly lesson plan. So they have a theme for the whole school, and it goes up through kindergarten, which is, like, actual kindergarten. Um, And we were just amazed that she had, like, you know, a real lesson plan for the day when she was, you know, just shy of a year old. And But it's it's just incredible to see all the things that that she's learning. Um, So we're really really happy that she's in, in this particular daycare. Um, yeah, and then I don't know exactly when, like, real preschool starts, but Sounds it like seems maybe like it to us. Yeah, yeah. she has, like, they, you know, she has a very, very structured day and lots of outdoor play and mm-hmm. sitting around in a circle and reading stories and stuff. So, yeah. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. We have parent-teacher conferences, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was the last set of feedback you got? Oh, so um, we we need to work on pronouns, so that's like uh-huh. the next next sort of language milestone is the appropriate use of you and I and yeah. Wow. Yeah. She's starting to use them, but wrong, like wrong. just incorrectly. Like yeah. she likes to, if I try to help her with something, she says, "Mommy, don't help you." Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. It's got to be like watching it's almost like watching all of human evolution through the lens of like mm-hmm. one particular person. Like you kind of start out as this blob, and then you start yeah. to learn things about the physical world, and totally. then establish communication, and soon technology will come into play. Yep. I have heard terrifying stories of uh, uh, like one of our venture investors has a toddler who walks up to flat screen TVs and tries to like swipe them to unlock like it's a giant iPhone. Just assuming everything <laughs> like is a, a giant, a giant iPad or iPhone, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll be curious to uh, hear the stories when technology starts to come into play. Or has it already? Like, is Not quite yet. I mean, she's, she's obvious. I mean, we haven't been so sheltering that she's never seen a phone. She understands the camera and FaceTime and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she hasn't really embarked on apps or watching tv or anything like that yet but i think that will come soon yeah, yeah. we'll keep her away from those uh, sugary drink uh, yes, apps exactly old dopamine yeah um i've got a set of questions that i ask everybody okay um if you could go back to college and take one course over again i'll include your mba uh, mm. experience here too what course would you take Hmm. Take it over again, or one class that I hadn't taken that I wish I could take. Oh, uh, take it over again. Take it over again. Um, hmm. Uh, I took. Let's see. This is a very good question. Um, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna limit myself to college. Um, I took a big serve. It was a big survey course, but taught by Stephen Jay Gould before he passed away, which was 
just incredible um, um, about evolution. I think it was nicknamed sex because, of course, all college classes must have a, a pithy name. Um, it was just fascinating, and each section of the class focused on something different, and I think mine was on the genome. But it was just, he was such an amazing lecturer, hmm. and it's something, you know, just learning about who we are is so... It's so central to yeah. to us, but we never really think about it unless, of course, you are a biologist or something by profession. Um, but yeah, I would love to take that again and just sort of without the pressure of, uh, you know, trying to memorize names or anything, just like enjoying that for what it, what it was. I am always curious about the answer to this question because I think people fall into one of two camps. It's either... This is a course that I got so much out of and really, I think, was enjoyable, and mm-hmm. I just want to have that experience again. Yeah. Or people answer, oh, there was this class that I bet was super... Like, I wish I could go back and take statistics because I slept right. through the entire thing, right. and uh, like that's the knowledge that I wish I would have had. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, uh, it's so fascinating to see what, what camp people fall into. Yeah, I feel like if there are skills that you really need that you feel like you're lacking, you, yeah. can, you can always get them. Right? I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, who's your best friend? Uh, my best friend is Veronica Mendoza. Veronica. And, yeah, and she, she and I have been friends since uh, fourth grade. Oh wow! Yeah. This is uh, your best friend who also got into Harvard, right? Yes, and then she also worked at Google on the wow. same team. So it's, we uh, have, you know, we're hiring here. I know <laughs> it is actually quite quite appalling that we do not still work together. Yeah. Uh, what part of the country is she in? Um, she's in New York. She's in New York still. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What, why are you best friends outside of shared origins? Um, well, I think that's part of it. But um, we, she's like my sister at this point. Um, we've wow. just known each other for so long, and we, we enjoy the same things. Um, we can make each other laugh all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, she's definitely the, the person that I, it can go... I can go a couple of weeks without talking to her, and then next time I talk to her, it's like we'll talk for three hours, like yeah. nothing, like nothing happened. That's yeah. great. That was really great. Um, what's your number one time waster app on your phone? Your the one that you accidentally, by default, muscle memory open up. If oh you pull God, your phone. I can spend so much time going down rabbit holes on Instagram, uh-huh. and then I also. Um, really have to ration time that I'll play two dots because if I start what is to, two dots? Oh, it's a game. It's very fun. Uh-huh. Um, you yeah, you have to have to clear different levels by putting dots together. It's very simple and very addictive. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I find that if I start to play that, I just won't be able to stop until like I run out of lives. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to play it very often. Nice. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm always looking for new, uh, yeah. new ways. Check it to... out, Two Dots. It's very attractive and simple and compelling. I actually, on the uh, on the Instagram part, so I I have an Instagram account. I've been trying, uh, mostly at my wife's urging, to like ramp up my Instagram activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I only follow, I don't know, 150 people or so. So yeah. on, at any given time, I feel like I run out of new content really rapidly. When yeah. you go down an Instagram rabbit hole, are you... Clicking on hashtags, or so you just kind of go. Yeah, yeah. So I'll find myself clicking on hashtags, or um, there's you know there's suggested content, and you know you can just flip through that. It's it's so silly, but 
Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely kill a lot of time. I got to work on my discovery yeah. skills on there. Yeah. Very, uh, uh, very echo chambery. my Instagram. Um, uh, what am I not asking you about that I should be? Now, we covered a lot of historical ground, but is there anything that is, mm. that's very you that I feel like we haven't covered or that you mm, feel like we haven't that's covered? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. Mm. Well, I guess, you know, there's just the, the other, the other outside of work stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, so I'm I'm a big reader. I'm trying to be more active in the RJ Book Club, oh, um, which is which is great for anyone listening. I recommend you you join. Not sure what we're reading next. Um, yeah, and obviously, given my husband's profession, it's definitely a mutual love of ours. So we have a we have a home that is filled with way too many books, and our daughter already has way too many books. Um, but yeah, it's real. It's really, it's really important to us. And um, yeah, and then I guess what else? I don't know. The this whole election, I could talk yeah. about for for hours. Give me, give me a high level. Uh... Um, I think my friend. I saw that my friend posted on Facebook of photo of someone. He saw someone with a bumper sticker that looked like you know a campaign bumper sticker, but the name was Giant Meteor. Yeah. And I think that about sums, about up, sums where, up where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that things won't turn out as badly as I feared they will. Uh, I, I think you can guess what that means. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I have, at some point in time, um, as we were about to pour some resources into the Cloud BI product here, I had this idea that I wanted to make red hats that say make Cloud BI great, great again. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was uh, shot down quite quite immediately <laughs> by all other members of the executive team. Oh. Uh, the old checks and balances. I think Brian Brian had actually tried to design one that said something something about pipeline. I can't remember what, but nice. yeah, it yeah. is obviously something we're all we're all thinking these days. Yeah, it's uh, for better or worse. At least we're in a like a meme renaissance right now. That's There's true. Just so much media material. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, uh, the hours of content being created on a daily basis on late night comedy shows is is pretty pretty impressive. Yes. Um, so I my last question here then I guess is who at RJ Metrics would you like to listen to a Buddy Time podcast about? Oh, this is a great question. Um, who? Hmm. Who do I nominate? Um, I would love to listen to one about Yanni. 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 Yeah. That's a great answer. I'd love to hear one about you. Yeah. Um, good deal. Well, Yana, you're up next. Hope you're listening, and hope everybody <laughs> else here has enjoyed uh, learning a little more about Johanna Richardson, Senior Product Manager at RJ Metrics. We will see you next time.